Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader, and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, before we get into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know that I've opened up enrollment again to my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. I ran the course for the first time earlier this year with a group of vegan business owners and entrepreneurs from across the globe over a 12-week period. And it now comes with a full 12 months of group coaching, including a monthly live question and answer call. You can also post your questions on the learning platform and you can post your pitches to get feedback from me before you send them to journalists. So you've basically got me holding your hand, helping you to do your own PR for a full year. It's a great value program. It's way more affordable than similar courses and it's the only one that's specifically aimed at vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. Some of the current students have already got media coverage in mainstream and specialist newspapers, magazines, radio and TV shows. So if you'd like to get your vegan brand or yourself featured in the media, but you don't have the budget to hire a publicist or a PR agency, then I highly recommend you check out this program. You get full and immediate access to the materials as soon as you enrol. You can find out all the details by going to veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the link for the course Vegans in the Limelight. In this episode, I interview Robert Petrarca, co-founder and chief operations officer at Maxine's Heavenly, a vegan cookie company in Los Angeles. The company is named after co-founder Tim Miller's mother Maxine, who took great pleasure in creating delicious sweet treats for the family. As Tim got older and started making cookies for his own children, he wanted to preserve the joy of his mother's baking, but adapt it for a healthier lifestyle. So he took out the processed flours and sugars, gluten and animal products, and replaced them with healthy plant-based alternatives, while still retaining the sumptuous flavours. Robert's background is in entertainment. He owned his own production company, and he's worked in theatre as a director. But when he tasted Maxine's cookies, which are also soy-free and only sweetened with coconut sugar, he was keen to come on board with the company. In this interview, Robert talks about how he and his team grew the company despite knowing nothing about the food industry, how prominently to feature the various free-from labels on products without scaring potential customers off, how to not only get your products into retailers, but maintain them there. Why focusing on smaller stores in the beginning is important, including for a business's cash flow, before approaching the larger retailers. How the company got lost in the Whole Foods market system for two years and what he learned from the experience. The challenges involved in co-packing and outsourcing manufacture of products to a third party and much more. Here's the interview with Robert Petrarca from Maxine's Heavenly. Hello, Robert. Thank you very much for joining me today. 
Thank you, Katrina. Happy to be here. So I'm excited to learn more about Maxine's Heavenly Cookies and uh, the business journey in particular. So the first question I ask everyone who's a guest on the show is, what's the why? You know, why did you, because you're one of the co-founders of the business, why did you start it? What are your reasons for running the business? Sure. It was, uh, well, it was pretty selfish, to be honest. I don't come from this, this world, the food world. Um, but I'm a vegan and, uh, yeah, it was probably like four or five years ago. I was at a, my business partner's house and he had made his mother's famous cookie recipe and he wanted me to try them. And I was like, well, is there butter and eggs and all the other things? And then he said, of course. And it's like, I, well, I'd love to try them, but I can't <laughs> eat them because I don't eat those things. And so he, you know, he was really he's such a great friend and, and has been for a while. And so he was like, well, why don't we just, why don't I play with making you a version? So he started to make a vegan version and it kind of started this whole dialogue about uh, the vegan options that are out there. And one of the things that we really landed on was like, you know, I love being a vegan, but there are so many vegan foods that are just loaded with garbage. So like even in his quest to update this recipe, it's like, okay, I'm going to use like this vegan butter from a store that has a lot of ingredients that you're like a little apprehensive about, like what are, what are all these additives to try to recreate, you know, the feeling or the consistency of butter. So I started looking around and I'm like, you know, all these vegan options, it's like white processed flours that have been bleached. It's these alternative butters. It's all these ingredients that I don't really want to put into my body. So we just started experimenting and replacing one by one with these healthy ingredients and came upon our, our recipe and we're like, wow, this is really good. This needs to be the new the new dynamic for vegan foods. It, can, it shouldn't be just about trying to recreate the original flavors. We also need to make healthy versions of these things that are nutrient dense, that are clean, and also give you the same tastes of the original product. So it's really this quest to, to have vegan, not to, to, to take on the assumption that vegan necessarily means healthy, but that you actually have to actively work to make the ingredients in vegan foods nutrient dense, healthy, and clean. I love that. And I really like that combination, like you've mentioned, um, because, you know, obviously as well, like we want people to embrace vegan foods and, you know, to ditch that whole stereotype that they're boring or they're bland. Right. But at the same time, if we can make them good for people as well as animals and the planet, that's a real bonus. So I, I love your thinking and your philosophy um, behind you. that. And how cool that your friend was open to, you know, veganizing his mother's recipe. Yeah, and you started was. a business around it. That's really fabulous. I love it. <laughs> it, was, it was very exciting. Actually, it was a very fun time. We probably went through so many different versions of the product before we landed on this. But yeah, we like to think of this as like, it's the, it's the next generation of vegan. It's like vegan started off with just, at least in my lifetime, let's just try to replicate. And we didn't really consider what things we're using to do that. Well, now we're in a time where food has evolved, food technology has evolved, and we can do these same things in a cleaner healthier way. Sure. And what about the name? So is Ma Maxine, is that your friend's mother's name? Or what, That's what's exactly right. It is. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So she's still got her stuff out there and, and it's veganized. That's so cool. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's another part of our philosophy. It's like taking the past and adapting it for today. So not saying, oh, well, we can't do cookies or we can't do these things because our lifestyle and with regard to food has changed. It's saying, okay, well, now how do we adapt this for today? And then you honor yesterday, but you acknowledge today. 
Beautiful. I love that. Absolutely love that. So who, in terms of your clientele then, Robert, who are your main customers? Are they predominantly vegans or are they just like regular people who um, just like a good cookie? Well, you know, absolutely. It's a great question. We we kind of, we're lucky because we, we capture a lot of different categories. Um, In addition to being vegan, we actually are also gluten-free. So we open up this whole other category of vegan. Okay. So we can isolate vegans, we can isolate gluten-free, and then there's also a, a, a growing sect of gluten-free vegans. We also are soy-free, and we're also, uh, we only sweeten with coconut sugar, which is like a lower glycemic index uh, sugar that doesn't, that's really good for people watching their, their sugar levels. So for us, we're in this unique position where we, we can kind of attract people from all those different categories. I would say, though, um, we've put a lot of attention into the vegan market just because it's such a passionate group of people and because you know, I'm a vegan myself. Um, so we've spent a lot of time at like vegan festivals and vegan promotional events. So I think even though we don't have a, an exact way of gauging, I think that it's probably our strongest, if not you know, one of our top two strongest categories. Got it, got it. And it's great, as you say, you can appeal to those other markets and also, I guess, that more general healthy consumer market, which is continuing um, to grow, which is, Absolutely. Which is fantastic. So where and, are your products? Oh, sorry, were you going to say something? Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, but also we have opened up interest from people who aren't vegan, who aren't gluten-free. I, I really believe in our products. We're soft-baked. We really taste like a fresh cookie. That's good, period. It does. It just happens to be vegan and that's, nice yeah that's what you like to say because it sometimes you say that word and people go oh I it's got yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny you said that it reminds me of the time when my dad he's dead now but years ago when um, I've not been long vegan and he loved his you know sausage and mash you know very <laughs> class family I remember we went along and um we were there we invited him up for dinner um to our apartment in London um at the time and I made him like his sausage and mash and I said here you go and he ate it and he I said oh how was your sausage mash and he said oh yeah it was lovely dear and I said oh great they were actually vegan sausages he went he went what he said oh I thought they tasted funny I said you just said that you loved them and it's like psychologically it's bizarre isn't it that, this is um, <laughs> this is making me laugh so hard our, first of all between our fathers would get along very well because I remember specifically all these years ago when I first discovered Uncle Eddie's vegan cookies which is another vegan brand that's been around for a long time and I gave my my father when I, I came home for the holidays and I was like you, you have to try this cookie. It's so good. And I did not say the word vegan. So I just gave it to him. He started eating it and he's like, mmm, mmm. And I was like, and they're vegan. And he's like, mmm, I don't like them. <laughs> and mid-chewing changes his opinion. So funny, isn't it? The, the, the way we can convince ourselves of things. But that, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny that you have such a similar story. Absolutely. So whereabouts are your products um, sold, uh, Robert? Are they predominantly in the US or? Or predominantly in California, whereabouts um, yeah, are they ex- carried? Exclusively in the US for now. We haven't ha- put together any distribution or shipping models that allow us to go outside of the United States. But we are predominantly in California just because that's where we are and that's where we've um, continued to grow. But we, uh, we are also in Washington and Oregon and Arizona and Utah a couple stores in Texas and we are moving into some Hawaii stores next month. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. That's great. So when you first started the company, what were some of your key challenges? 
Well, you know, we were both very stupid. So my business partner, <laughs> he came from computers, uh, computer software, and I actually came from uh, entertainment industry. So I, I had a, a production company um, up in the nor- in Northern California. And um, so our biggest challenges were that we just, we didn't really know what we were doing and we didn't know this industry. I mean, we both had a really strong entrepreneurial spirit, which I actually think is one of the most important things you need to have if you're going to start your own business. But, um, but we didn't, we didn't really know the industry. We didn't know the food industry at all. So we had to start from the ground level in terms of learning just how anything works. And then once you open up that can of worms, you start going, Oh man, especially with food, certain regulations that are federal, certain regulations that are statewide, um, some certification things when we wanted to claim we were certain things that we are. Um, and then just the manufacturing process and scaling that up from being like, well, I'm making this small batch that makes like three dozen cookies at our house to now you need to make like a thousand cookies or 10,000 cookies or 20,000 cookies. So for us, it was really just pretty much everything. I mean, it was, was a challenge because every time we came up against something, it was like, okay, let's first learn about this thing and then figure out how to solve it. Got it. So when you say you figured it out, so did you kind of figure like do all this yourself or did you hire professionals along the way to help you with some of that? We didn't have that luxury, but I will tell you what we did, what we were really very lucky is that we found some key allies who have and continue to help us, who who happen to have known the industry. Uh, my One of my business partners, good friends, is uh, was in, in the, the food industry for years and years. I think actually he's still not even retired from the food industry. So he was a, definitely a crutch for us to lean on. And during one of my, I was do, when I was doing demos, when we were first starting off just going into stores and sampling out products and and building brand awareness, I met this broker who has been like an angel to us since who's just always available to, to talk through ideas. And, and it kind of stresses the importance of getting out there, especially in the beginning. It's like, if you can't build a company in the privacy as much as we'd like in the privacy of your home by your computer safely, you have to really like get out and meet people and do things and build alliances and build a network of people because they really become your support group in the beginning. If you don't have the resources to hire, consultants or industry professionals who can come in there and help you. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I know some of the vegan business owners I've spoken to, whether it's been skincare or other types of things, particularly physical products like that, there's nothing quite like getting in front of actual customers so that they can actually taste the product, but also, like you say, making those connections and collaborations with other industry professionals um, can really reap some benefits. So just on that, in terms of retailers, so like you said, you've gone from, you know, kind of making a batch of cookies in the kitchen to now being uh, you know, sold in stores across the US. So I know that a lot of vegan brands, they sometimes face challenges getting and maintaining their products in retailers um, and especially the large supermarket chains. Is there anything, can you tell us a little bit of, of information about what are some of the issues that are involved and what you need to take into account on that front? Sure. And it's good that you asked it in that way, I think, because it is two different processes often. One, getting into a store, but then two, maintaining, which is often overlooked. I mean, you, I think at the beginning, you have these great ideas that once you land in the store, then that's your, you know, especially a bigger chain to get to like moving forward, you know, you can just put up your feet and wait for the purchase orders. And unfortunately, it's just not the case at all. So that for us, what we've discovered is that often people set their sights on the big 
the big stores. And of course here that's stores like Whole Foods. Um, that's obviously the first, I think that comes to anybody's minds when yeah. you're in the natural food sect here in, in, um, the, the States, you say, ah, Whole Foods, well, it's the be all end all. Um, and it's definitely important, but it is the, the bigger stores are a process. I mean, it's like courting somebody to be wed for the rest of your life. I mean, it takes, <laughs> you know, it can take, months and months and months. And I'd be happy to go back to our, our personal story with Whole Foods, which continues to this day. But um, in the meantime, just to finish the question, um, the, big, the big stores can take a lot of attention and they can take a lot of time. And in the meantime, you can't just be waiting, especially if you don't have a lot of capital in your company because your every day costs money unless you're bringing in revenue. So um, for us, a huge part of this was the smaller stores and they become these lifesavers. If you can go and often they're easier to enter. So it's easier to get a hold quickly of the buyers or the people making the decisions in some of these smaller stores. And it's easier to build a personal relationship. And usually there are less hoops to jump through to get your products in their stores. And smaller stores that invest in and believe in growing companies are so vital and so often overlooked. And for us, it was building a giant network of these stores. And they really supported our growth so that we could bide the time while we wait for these larger grocers to go through their review processes or the, the you know, the, the hoops that you have to jump through just to get um, considered and then ultimately be purchased and brought into the store. Nice, nice. So I love, yeah, I, yeah, I like that. You mentioned about Whole Foods, and I, I would love to hear your story if, around that if you're happy to to share it. And but also the fact that I think Whole Foods has recently been bought by Amazon, and I think that's yes. kind of shaking things up a bit. And I don't know if there's anything you can share on that front or your views on how that may impact smaller vegan brands. Yeah, they have, and I don't, I don't really know, and I don't think anybody knows because it's a little too soon. But what I will say is the one comforting thing is that Whole Foods, the the process of getting into Whole Foods changes. Like, I mean, every few months, their their category submission processes change, and they've had like local foraging programs that have gone in and out. And um, you know, they're consistently such great people to connect with and work work with, but they, they definitely, you definitely have to monitor how they're receiving new brands and, and interacting with new brands because it changes quite often. So that said, you know, it's changing again because of um, Amazon acquiring them. I don't know that it's really going to be any different than it currently is in terms of what might change as it always is cons- consistently evolving with them. Um, do you have but, to um, like apply to each individual Whole Foods store and develop a relationship with them, or is it more on a state or a regional level? Well, it's it's re- it begins regionally, really. Um, you can go nation. You can apply to nationwide, and and I think for smaller businesses, that's that's a very hard route to go. First of all, I don't know that you're going to garner the intention the attention unless you have a very unique product. But then also, you have to be prepared to be able to fulfill. The, you know, the number of stores they have nationwide. And also that's, that's a whole distribution model in terms of how you're getting to all the warehouses that service the different Whole Foods throughout the United States. Um, but uh, the other route is then approach, approaching regionally. And they've gone, gone in and out of having different local foraging programs. So for us, our entryway to start was through a local foraging program in the Southern Pacific region of Whole Foods. So that's basically everyone in, everywhere in the Southwest of the United States. So it's California and Hawaii. And I can't remember if there are other states in, in the SOPAC region, but um, so we, you can submit regionally every year. They have, I think what's called an open category review 
schedule by region. And it used to be that they were all at different times. They've since changed it. So they're all now on the same schedule. Um, and it's by category. So you wait for us, we wait for cookies when that opens up. Um, but we also had the benefit of going through what they had in terms of a local foraging program at first. And that's, there's somebody like regionally who, who will look at new brands and they can kind of bypass that open category of you and say, Hey, we're going to try you out in a couple stores or we're going to bring you in regionally because you're a local product. Um, and that's how we started off. And the funny part is, um, it's just kind of a story for per persistence. When we first went, got what they call onboarded and brought in for, for, through the local foraging program, um, the woman who is handling our account, they changed the whole forging program and got rid of it before they placed their first purchase order oh, for our wow. product. And we, we got lost. I mean, we couldn't, the person who was managing our account was no longer the local forager. That program was gone. And we had gone through all these different steps in terms of having our labels reviewed in terms of adjusting our insurance to meet their standards. And then suddenly nothing. And for, Two years, we kept going to the open category submissions and nothing, hear nothing. And then it's only recently that that we've been in touch with. They kind of revamped the forging program in a different way, and we've reconnected with this wonderful person there um, who's been really supportive of us and is bringing us in now. So it's um, it's been quite a journey, but it's <laughs> but it's a perfect example of how long it can take to court larger companies. And I get it. I mean, they're bigger companies. They have a lot more to think about and they have protocols in place for a reason. So in the meantime, the best bet I think is always is going and, and putting a lot of attention and support into the smaller stores. Yeah. Oh, that's really good advice, actually. That's, that's fantastic. And that is persistence. Like when you said that, and I thought you were going to say, oh, and it's just, you know, then a few months later, it all worked <laughs> out. And you were like two years, like you put all yeah. that effort and money in as well. Like you said, adjusting the insurance and everything. And um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, definitely important easy. to be persistent. It is. And it's easy to get frustrated and say, oh, well, this is a ridiculous system or, oh, this is impossible or we're giving up because they, they already told us no. But it, it, uh, things change and evolve. And if, as long as you keep showing up and you, and you find other ways to survive in the meantime and build your brand, they'll always be there and there's always a second chance. Love that. Absolutely brilliant advice. So I noticed your cookies, one of your selling points is your cookies are handmade. So as you say, obviously that's easy to do in the kitchen where you're physically doing it. How have you managed to scale that up in terms mm -hmm. of them continuing to be handmade and still have that quality that they sure. would have from, you know, Maxine herself <laughs> making <laughs> sure. them in the kitchen? Well, you know, I would love to, to say there's some brilliant idea behind it, but it's just what you think in terms of, I mean, our batches have gotten bigger. It's like our first, our first batches were like, you know, like maybe one pound. And then now we're producing at like 50 to 60 pounds per batch every time we mix the batter. And that's a lot. That's like 50 to 60 pounds of cookie dough. Yeah. But just from there, it just gets, it just little hand scoops and, and it's just extra people hand scooping them. I don't know if we'll always continue that. But what we always will continue to do is, is try to preserve the experience of that because it is important for us. We are definitely a more expensive product and being hand, hand scooped and, and where we are in our own development um, is, is all part of that. But so preserving that quality will always be there. But um, unfortunately, <laughs> it's not any brilliant idea. It's just more people, more hands and more scooping. Got it. So when you say more people and more hands, like do you run your own like factory or do you outsource it to um, a separate factory to make? 
We are we do kind of a combined idea at the moment, although I think that will change as we grow. Because and I'll kind of can talk about that a little later. But we we are in a facility that we don't own, but is um, a shared facility. So we rent out a space. We have our our time in the kitchen each week, and uh, we go in there with a team of people and, and make the cookies. Oh, so cool. that's that's one route. You know, it's a very it's a question we've asked ourselves and I think food manufacturers and any manufacturer really can continue to ask yourself is at w- what makes more sense in terms of us outsourcing, having somebody else create the product or us taking on that responsibility ourselves. And the intuition of course is I want to do it myself or else it's not really our product. <laughs> but the problem is, is there are only so many hours in the day. And if you are suddenly, you know, a national, a United States national product and you're, you're trying to go to, to, to all the states in this country with all, all those miles apart, you, you can't possibly be, first of all, there's not enough hours to be in the kitchen. Second of all, you'd be only in the kitchen and you have to run your business, you know? So for us, we're at that point where we're probably going to be turning over the manufacturing to somebody else. And what we've just done has been very, um, very um, t- tireless in our pursuit of a partner that we believe in because co-packing can be tricky. Yeah. 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 After a lot of vetting, we've we found um, a partner that is so wonderful. And uh, next month, it looks like we'll be moving over to to full um, manufacturing through another company. Oh, cool! When you mentioned you just said there about uh, co-packing can be tricky. What are some of the issues involved in that? Well, you know, when it's your own product and you're controlling everything i mean that's great you 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 but you're the most passionate about your product you care the most about it and you have the most to lose if something goes wrong but when you turn that over to somebody it's it's not their top priority and you become one of and if you don't have a a person that is meticulous with their facilities that doesn't put the care and attention into your products that you would yourself put in, you can really start having a conflict in terms of the quality of product that you put out there. Got it. Because I guess, because you can't really go in there and sort of oversee them yeah. in the same way that you could your exactly. own team. When your yeah. hands are literally in the dough. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Now, so I'll talk a little bit about competition. I, know, I was going to ask you about how you stand out because obviously there's more, a much more diverse range of vegan cookies in the world. But I think you kind of touched on that earlier um, about you've, you're really sort of forging a, a place in the market where you're going for something that absolutely tastes as delicious as the 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 cookie with the butter and the cream in it, but also you're focusing on the health side of things. So is that the key way you would say that you you stand out and maintain your customers? Absolutely. And then also combining categories that are um, really hard to find together. Gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, soy-free. Got it. Um, this, is, this is a really, really hard combination to find. So we're, we're, we're not like one of many when we get that specific. Got it. Do you find you're having to, with all those labels, that's something someone asked me that recently. It's like, you know, if you do tick all those boxes and all those categories, is it worth, like, should you advertise that? Or can it kind of have a counter effect of if you've got all this free from this, free from that, free from the other, and people think, well, if it hasn't got any of that in it, you know, is it, is it actually going to taste any good? What's, you know, what's your thoughts on that in terms of? I think it's a great question. It's absolutely a concern because you can get into this very, very small um, small group of people with like 
very specific needs. And then that becomes a, a small audience. And I do think that when people see too many, know this, know that, know the other thing, you know, I'll be doing demos all the time. People say, well, what does it have in there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> yeah. like, <laughs> so that definitely is a concern of people. So you, ha- you do have to be conscious about that. And actually, accordingly, we're, we're actually going through a, a rebranding process. We're, we're changing our package and our look. And we've been asking that question. It continues to be part of our questioning as we land on our brand message. It's like, well, how much are we pushing that? And how much of that just becomes a matter of fact thing about our product? And I think that's, I think we're probably moving a little less to the forefront because the people who are those things, it's like, that's like vegans. It's like, you know, I'm as a vegan, it's like you look for the products you know, you, you're going to, if that's your category, you look for yeah, it. And you, you look for the out. name. Yeah. And even if it's somewhere yeah. buried on the back of the package in small you find letters, it. it's, you find, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, so, so, so the people who are also gluten-free are doing the same thing. And the people who maybe avoid soy are doing the same thing. And the people with sugar problems are doing the same problem, the same thing as well. So, yeah. so I don't think we have to like smack it across people's face, but right. part of our brand and our messaging, and we don't want to lose that or be ashamed of that either. Got it. Got it. So in terms of marketing and getting yourself out there and growing your brand, what have been some of the marketing strategies you've used that have been successful in doing that? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the challenging thing about food production and manufacturing in, in general is that there's two different kinds of marketing. We, d- we do direct to consumer through our website so people can join. The, uh, we have a cookie club, a monthly cookie club, which is actually really a fun idea. And we have on our website uh, an online commerce store so you can just buy our cookies, buy the bags, and have them shipped directly to you. And we're also on Amazon. But the, the big the bulk of our um, – so, so all that to say that's, that's one – advertising um, uh, avenue is getting to the people who purchase directly from us. But the bulk of our purchases come through the stores. And so then that becomes a whole different marketing strategy. So you have for us, for our, our website, our direct orders, um, Facebook is definitely the, the biggest avenue for, for marketing and, and reaching people and building a message um, we also have like an ongoing blog that's all nutrition based and about becoming a chief health officer and, and looking for the things that we believe are like a Maxine's heavenly product that have all those clean ingredients. So that's that world. And we're learning a lot in that. And I think it's a constantly shifting world. It's like people, I think even when we started this four years ago, people weren't really buying that many groceries online. And now it's it's a lot more common. So there's been a lot of a huge learning curve in there in terms of what works, what doesn't work. Um, what kind of ways are we framing our messaging? How we get convincing people to buy this one particular grocery item online. But then uh, there's a whole store level marketing and that's, that's kind of tried and true. It's like the whole, um, sale world that we live in it's it's running promotions it's and then each store has its own unique marketing program so um sometimes it's like an old-fashioned flyer bulletin that works for some of their customers depending on the kind of store sometimes it's digital ads sometimes it's coupons sometimes it's demos and that all becomes a marketing package that you shape with each different store that you're in and that's a real tedious product process and it actually goes back to your whole question about how do you maintain stores and that is a vital part of maintaining stores is having a support system for the customers that come into that store that attract new customers but also keep people buying and believing in your product 
Yeah, absolutely. No, some really good uh, good nuggets of uh, uh, advice in there, um, particularly, like you say, about having those, uh, well, tailoring the marketing specifically to those uh, different audiences, the, the commercial side and the audience side. I think that's really good to, to point that out. Um, and also the importance of all the different types of marketing. So the online marketing, I guess the social media side of things, you said you're on Amazon as well and your e-commerce store and you go out and physically go to events. And I think it's that really important aspect of having a combination of online and offline marketing to get people you know talking about your brand and spreading the word about it that's absolutely right and you uh, mentioning the events is is great because I, I that that is a really important part it's it's getting out there um, getting samples of your product in people's hands and some of the the best things and the most encouraging things we've done are go to vegan festivals um, where we have a booth and people can buy our product right there, but we also sample and they try them and they interact with us. And where do you sell this? How can I get this? Nice. And, it's, nice. It's, and then you build this community. And then also you're reminded, oh, people like this product because most of the time you're just sitting in your offices or having these conversations and you get very little opportunity to interact with the audience, with, with the customers because they're buying through stores or clicking yes. online and you don't really know, do they like us? Do they not like us? What works? What doesn't work? And it's great because you get instant feedback and you're reminded, oh, we have a good product. I really believe in this. Kind of like refreshes the soul. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and also important as well, like you said, of even though your products are in the store, you can't rely on that store to do your marketing and promo Absolutely for not. you. You've yeah. still got to do it so that they go, oh, yes, people are buying this. Well, let's keep it on the shelf. So, yeah, <laughs> it's good that you've touched Absolutely. on that because I think you're right. People think, oh, that's it. I've made it. I'm in the store. People are just, you know, buy, is it build it and they will come. But that's right. obviously changed because, you know, especially with the, the competition and stuff. So that's a really, yeah. really important advice. Thank you. And, so, and when a yeah. store has fifty to 80,000 different brands on their shelves, it, yes. you understand, of course, not so. Yeah. Exactly. So for those people who are perhaps at the stage where you were four years ago, I think it was when you, you started the, the business. Um, so and maybe, you know, they're in the food or confectionery sector. What, in your opinion, are the key things they should take into account before making that leap? Because you made that leap. You mentioned you and your, your business partner. You didn't have any experience in this sector. You both had you know, completely different types of jobs. What are the kinds of things that people need to take into account before making that jump from employment to uh, running their own business? Yeah, well, you know, I think that we all like to believe we have a tenacity of spirit that keeps going no matter what. But you really have to ask yourself, like, do I do I have that? Because we we get really swept up by dreams and and ambitions, and they're so important because they do take us, make us take risks and and go on and do and do things outside of the box. And I think that's so vital. But the reality of things is always a lot more bleak than the dreaming of things. So you have to be, I think you have to say, am I prepared for both sides of this when I'm sitting at home and no one's buying my product and I, I don't know exactly what the next steps are? Do I have the patience and do I have um, the self-confidence to say I can move through this or, or don't I? Um, and I think being impassioned by the dreamy side of things, but also being impassioned by being in the dirt and the trenches is they're equally as important. And you have to ask yourself, am I the kind of personality that can really handle that? Because it is, it's the dream fades and comes back and fades and come back and you're always chasing it. But the reality is always there, you know? 
Yeah, no, that's really good advice, actually. And it is very different, that sort of journey, entrepreneurial journey. It's not that, you know, regular, you do your nine to five or eight to six, whatever hours, and you get your yeah, paycheck every week. Exactly. Every month. It's, uh, it's very yeah, different. Exactly. I think a lot of people kind of end up giving themselves yeah. a job in which they're actually working longer hours. Right. right. Um, that's exactly right. You have to be prepared for those hours. It will be, you know, 60 to 80, 90 hours. And also you should take whatever your idea of when you're going to get your first paycheck from the company and times that amount of time by three or four. Ah, uh, yes. It's probably a lot more realistic because yeah. it's always when money comes in, you always are ready to pay somebody else or something else before you pay yourself. Got it. Well, that leads nicely into my next question is around funding. So as you mentioned, you know, you started small, you were pretty much bootstrapping. Um, so obviously funding a business, there's always some kind of startup cost and particularly with a, a business such as yourselves, you actually got to get the ingredients and, and all the rest of it and the equipment uh, to make it. So can you, um, if you're comfortable saying so, perhaps talk us through some of the methods you used to get capital, to get started and, and then grow the business sure you know the really funny part is i came from um a nonprofit background and so did our, our marketing director too and so much of the time was spent like raising money and i was like oh i can't wait to get to the for-profit world where that's not what you do <laughs> like, oh, wait. no it's, it's the same thing it's just a different end game but it's basically it's basically the same same idea it's always where's the money and how are we getting it um and there there are different ways um so for us, it started off with a lot of like personal investments in friends and family. And I think that's how a lot of companies start. Um, it's hard to, without, if you don't have experience as an entrepreneur or a track record of growing businesses from the ground up, it's really hard um, to just pitch an idea and get investors unless you happen to have a great group of people who know and trust you as a, as a person and a business person. Um, so for us, it was a lot of small pieces of money and my partner put in a lot of money. Um, and it was kind of just grassroots in that, that way. Um, we've taken a, a little bit of investment money along the way, but we're also very apprehensive to do so because with investment money comes a loss in percentage ownership of the company. Yes, and yeah. we feel very passionately that we want to be steering the ship. We want it to be our company and we want to build it based on the values that we really believe in. Um, and every time, you know, you can, it's not to say you can't find capital or VC money that's, that's comes with, you know, morals and, and, and support for the things that you believe in. It's possible, but it's also possible that it doesn't. Um, and it's possible that you can lose more of your company than you want to. So we've been really apprehensive about that. And then, of course, the other option is loans, but they take a really long time for you to like build a business credit and build the relationships with banks and whatnot to qualify. Um, it's, a, it's all based on you know revenue and, 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 and all that and how much you're making each year. So that can, if you're, and if you're reporting losses for the beginning years, which is common, it could be a while before you get loans. Right. So we've, I think those are kind of three principal sources and we've utilized bits of everything. Um, there are other ways there's crowdfunding is becoming another thing that people are doing. Um, uh, if, if you kind of have to ask you, my marketing director actually put this so brilliantly when I wanted to put together a crowdfunding campaign early on, she was like, well, um, crowdfunding works a lot like marketing and for you to have a successful crowdfunding campaign you have to have a big audience because only a percentage of the people you go after are actually going to donate so yes. if so doing this 
building a, a, a following, building a brand, having a vision, all those things that you have to do as a key part of marketing anyway are all part of a, a crowdfunding campaign. So um, a successful one, that is at least, where you're going to make the kind of money that you really need. So there's no like one solution fits all, but there are, but those are kind of the principal ways and we've kind of dipped our toes in a little bit of each of them. And that's another important thing about starting your own business. You have to be very financially creative. How can you move money? <laughs> yes. how, can you, how can you control cash flow when, you, when it's a real hard circumstance to, to control it? And how do you minimize all the money that's going out the door at the beginning um, while you do things like support your research and development and, and put together your first round of packaging? I mean, for us in the food industry, it's like we almost went into shock and it's like, okay, the first round of bags that we wanted to print, the minimum order quantity was like 50,000, which at that oh, point wow. for us almost sent us through the, through the floor. It's like, what? And the money that that costs to, to get the plates for them, to get them printed, to get them shipped to us. And then you're just sitting on 50,000 bags where you're like, how do I get rid of these bags? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's a yeah. long-winded way of saying that, but there's, there's, there are a, a bunch of different options. And I think the thing that... It, that is most important that it always boils down to is, do you know what story you're pitching? Because that in any level is what's going to get people interested and financially supportive of what you're trying to do. And that start, it's that great advice from my marketing director. It's like that starts for your marketing plan. It starts for your capital plan. It starts for the success of your business is what are we doing? Why is that same question you asked me? Why, what's our why? Yeah. Why is it? Why are we unique? And do we really know what kind of story we're trying to tell here? Absolutely. Now, that's such good advice. And I think particularly, I'll just pick up on what you said about the investors, like some of the, because I've, I've interviewed some vegan investors, um, and all of them say, well, whilst you're right, there are some people out there that are like angel investors and just kind of think, yeah, okay, that's mm -hmm. a cool idea. Basically, they see it as a risk, and they like to actually see the business owner putting in something themselves yes. so that they're taking the risk. Cause I see, I often get approached by people saying, Oh, I've got this great idea for a product. Do you know, any investors that, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, you know, what, what's your kind of budget? And they're like, Oh yeah, I haven't got any money. I'm broke at the moment. And it's like, you know, there's not going to be a lot of investors that are going to go, Oh yeah, here's a whole bunch of money. Unless you've got that, you know, track record or you've at least you've got something yep. on the line yourself. So I'm, I'm yes. glad that you, you touched on that as well, which is fantastic. Exactly right. And of course the other exception could be is if you have, an idea that is just totally you know just revolutionary and you can you can pitch people based on that idea and it's something yes. unique that people get, or you're going to excite so many people but often it's not you know for us it wasn't it's a vegan gluten-free cookie i mean that's not anything outstandingly innovative i think we found our own unique boys yeah. but um, we're not going to get millions of dollars in investment i think people underestimate how much money you can raise um unless you know, and if you're, if you're like us where you're not in, you're not doing something overly creative or new, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, no, for sure. No, that's very, very good advice. So what you've been going about four years now and you're continuing to grow and what's your long-term vision for Maxine's and for yourself? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's for us, it's, it's more than just having a cookie company. It's like, you know, especially the both of us from being from the nonprofit world, we're really like, we're, you know, we're, we get really like impassioned and we, we want to believe in the things that we're creating. Um, and we want a world where people do believe in the things that they're doing and creating and they're happy. And so it's, it's about for us creating a movement as much as it is about creating a product and having a philosophy around that. So for us, it's yes, we want to be 
a nationwide company. We want our cookies to be sold in stores all across the United States, worldwide. We want to change how people, you know, but, sorry, but on a second note, we want to change how people view foods. So we want, we want to impassion people to eat the best foods. We want to define like what's a Maxine's heavenly philosophy for how to eat, how to take care of yourself, how to take care of um, your life and your mind and your body and your spirit and how to incorporate that all in food. So we become more than just this product. It's not just about selling this thing. It's about having this philosophy that's all about living the best version of yourself, about um, feeling nutritional, feeling fulfilled nutritionally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, all these things. Um, so we, we want to be a nationwide brand. We want us, our cookies sold in every store, but we also want to have a deep-rooted philosophy as we do it. Mm, I love that. I mean, I think you're the perfect definition of a mission-driven business, so a mission-driven for-profit business, which I think is it's quite exciting times where we're really starting to see developments in this area where, yeah. you know, yes, you're running on a, you know, essentially a traditional business model in one sense, because obviously you've got to have profit coming in to, to stay afloat, but you've got that, yeah, the mission behind it of being part of this broader mission that's basically good for people, animals, and planet, which I, I yeah. love. So yeah. Uh, it's fun if I can, sorry, just add one little thing. Not yeah, go for it. But I love that we're, I'm lucky that I'm in a business, the natural foods business that was really pioneered and founded by people with that sort of philosophy who, who took an industry that didn't exist and built it based on morals and beliefs. And that's an, another thing about vegans that I love. It's, it's about, like you're saying, making things better and understanding that the world of capitalism and and then having the, the world of like morally driven business they can all live together and for us as people with nonprofit backgrounds we're always we're excited and continuing to look for the opportunities for us to find ways to give back what's what's the way that we can contribute um, as we continue to grow and find success wonderful I love that it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today Robert you shared some really great nuggets of wisdom there and uh, I'm excited to try your cookies I know they're not available in Australia but I'm going to be in LA at the uh, beginning of November so I'll have a look in one of the local stores and, uh, oh, and that's uh, yeah Thank so you. I get to actually taste because they sound lovely and I hope you do get worldwide and, and are sold across everywhere because they, they sound amazing and I love I say I love the mission behind your business and really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your tips it's been wonderful speaking with you thank you Thank you, Katrina. It's been a huge pleasure. And hopefully next after United States is Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So that was Robert Petrarca from Maxine's Heavenly. You can find out more at maxinesheavenly.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 89. Now for our vegan business news roundup. A group of students in Italy have developed a vegan hard-boiled egg, reports One Green Planet. Four master's students at the University of Udine spent a year creating the cholesterol-free, ready-to-eat egg, which has both an egg white and a realistic egg yolk. It's also gluten-free, being made from several legume-derived flours, vegetable oils, a sulfurous vegan salt, and a plant-based gelling agent. Now, it'll probably be a while before these will be in production because the students are about to apply for a patent for their invention. But isn't this great? Piece by piece, we're removing any objection people may have to wanting animal products by providing realistic plant-based alternatives. Fantastic.
One of the UK's most famous cooking schools has launched a vegan course, reports Metro. Leith School of Food and Wine announced the dates for the first course for autumn 2017, which quickly sold out, so they've now added additional dates for the one-day course in November 2017, as well as January and April 2018. Managing Director Camilla Schneiderman said, We've noticed a definite surge in the demand for nutritional knowledge combined with practical cookery skills over the past few years, which led to the launch of our Nutrition in Practice course. The menu for the day includes a range of cuisines, including dairy-free cheese sauce, beet bourguignon, love that little play on words, (laughs) egg-free mayonnaise, risotto, and chocolate mousse with tahini biscuits. The school's also working on an evening course with sessions set to cover nutrition, dinner party recipes, and vegan cakes and baked goods. This is fantastic. It's great to see cooking schools recognise the need for vegan culinary training and how fabulous that there's now going to be more plant-based chefs in the world. Bring it on. Finally, a vegan version of Shark Tank is set to take place at the Vivolution Festival in London in the UK in November. That's 2017 if you're listening in the future. Plant-based entrepreneurs will have the opportunity to participate in Pitch and Plant, the UK's first ever plant-based business investment challenge at a vegan festival. Six businesses will be selected before the event to pitch investors for a chance to win £1,500 plus mentorship from Bran Investments, and the runner-up will receive a £500 prize. Brand Investments is a family business dedicated to supporting young entrepreneurs and has a passion for helping the world adopt a more sustainable and vegan lifestyle. Partner Ashish Goyal said, Pitch and Plant will give early stage businesses a chance to win prize money, potential for further funding, and more importantly, get mentoring to help them get their business achieve greater success. The event will be held on the 25th of November at the prestigious Royal Institution in Mayfair, London. Startups can apply by filling in a form and applications must be made by the 27th of October. And again, that's 2017. You can find a link to the form to apply on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 89. What a brilliant initiative. I've been thinking for a while now that we need a vegan shark tank, and this comes pretty close. I'm loving the innovation from Damien Clarkson and Judy Nadal from Vivolution, which is fast becoming renowned as the Vegan TED Talks Festival. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to miss this year's event as I'm in London for the VegFest UK trade and consumer shows in October, but then I head off to New York and LA, but hopefully I'll make it to a Vivolution at some stage in the future. But if you are in the UK, then I highly recommend you check this out. And certainly if you're a business owner, it will be great to go along. And even if you're not taking part in the pitch and plant, if you can get yourself along there, it'll certainly be worth watching and learning. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. 
Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.